Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I'm your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How you doing today, Josh? Oh, I'm doing good. How about yourself? Hanging in there. <laughs> yeah, you still got the COVID. Yeah. Hear it. But it just makes you sound, uh, you know, gravelly and cool. Yeah, like I spoke cigarettes. Uh, but we are excited you're hearing the laugh today of i would say a genre movie legend screenwriter and playwright dennis paoli you will know his name surely if you're a horror fan from movies like reanimator from beyond meridian kissed of the beast the pit and the pendulum abel ferrara's body snatchers dagon and most recently suitable flesh which for a long time was an unmade movie, and we'll circle back to that chronologically at the end. He also wrote the reanimator, the musical, and Nevermore, which I love very much. And back in the day, Bleacher Bums. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you brought that up. I love um, I love that yeah, that you loved both of those. I'm so but, proud of that. I'm so proud. Yeah. We're friends with a lot of the reanimator, the musical cast, but nevermore. Yeah, nevermore really. That was such a cool thing to get to see. Uh, I think I saw that at the Steve Allen. Oh, the Steve Allen. Great yeah. place to see it. Great place to see both of those shows. Great, great theater. It is It is much missed, I believe. I don't believe it's there anymore. It is. Much no, no, it's gone. I mean, I think it or maybe it moved, but it's not yeah, in, yeah, but it's it's not not, in the location. It's not in the same space. The space yeah. was wonderful for the kind of theater Stuart did. Stuart always did theater that that came off the stage at you and and Jeffrey playing Edgar Allan Poe in Nevermore literally came off the stage at you. <laughs> so it was, yeah, that was, that was fun. It was fun to work with those guys again. It was fun to work in the theater with them. It was great fun. And can we go a little light on the legend thing? Uh, it makes <laughs> no, me lean into let's it. See, old. It makes me feel <laughs> oh, old. I see. You can still be a legend in your own time, as the saying goes. Yeah, right. You know, yeah, my time, my my time was why my time was twenty five years ago. So, uh, you know, I'm trying to drag that with me, but we'll we'll see, we'll see. Before we get into the unmade projects, I'd love to just kind of start out with your origin story because I know you go way back with Stuart Gordon. How did you? I mean, you've been in several businesses on the stage and screen, but how did you get into the creative world to begin with? Stuart and I met in high school. So the way into the creative- Was it Chicago or- Chicago, it's a Lane Technical High School in Chicago back when it was all guys, which meant we could be crazy. We didn't have to, <laughs> we didn't have to impress girls at all, all day. All we, we could be as nuts as we wanted. And we discovered each other uh, sometime in our sophomore years. And we discovered what that we had very much the same sense of humor. While he was an art student, I was a math and science guy. But we discovered that we also loved we loved reading and we loved film. And, and we loved the same kind of films. I mean, we were good students. Stuart was the secretary of his graduating class. And I was an honor student. But we used to cut class every once in a while. And when we would cut class, it would be to go to see the new Hammer film, you know, the new Christopher Lee Dracula or the new American International Poe adaptation. So we were into that. We were into the horror and fantasy uh, genre early on. When you're a science and math guy and you, do, and you read, you read science fiction. Mm-hmm. So that also took us right into Lovecraft. 
you know, so when when Lovecraft showed up later on the screen, it was it was in it was in our wheelhouse. We were already we were very ready for that. So it was sort of, you know, my advice to young writers is start early and make friends with geniuses. <laughs> then, That's uh, good advice. And your stuff might get made. <laughs> ba- even back in high school, we started a, a satire group. Our heroes were the Second City uh, satire uh, comedy troupe, the sketch comedy people uh, at Second City in Chicago. And they and is that were, what you were doing? You were doing like short comedy sketches? We were doing, yeah, we were, do, we, we were doing uh, sat- satirical sketches all the way into improv and broad comedy. We played the, we worked the Chicago coffee house circuit uh, as high school teenagers and we got hired. We were pretty good. It was a great experience in terms of collaborating, learning to collaborate with somebody because Stuart and I wrote most of the bits together because I had been writing to some degree. I, I thought I might want to want to write and writing was a interesting pastime to me, but I never finished anything. I had drawers of unfinished, you know, you write the first page. Oh, I got a great, yeah. <laughs> write the first page. And then the second page. Yeah, it's working. This is working. And the third page, it's not working anymore. You know, it's it's a little harder. Where do I go from here? What does this character say now? You know, was this really a good idea in the first place that ends up in a drawer? And I had a drawer full of those things. And I never finished anything until I collaborated with somebody. And luckily I was collaborating with Stuart, who had a great sense of story. Stuart, Stuart could see a story from start to finish at the be- right from the beginning. Uh, I was good at the the dialogue and the character stuff, but Stuart was was a great storyteller, a master storyteller. When he went into theater in college and then uh, after college at uh, when he started the organic theater in Chicago, you that was a great it was in the great tradition of uh, Chicago story theater. And it going to see a show at the organic theater was like going to a movie a movie that was live on stage that came off the stage at you at any, at any moment. It was so exciting. Uh, so when uh, Brian Usna showed up, saw Stewart's work and said, let's make a movie. Stewart was really ready to go. And he dragged me along with him happily. And, uh, <laughs> and sort of that's the story of, uh, of how you, you know, that's the story of how you get into the filmmaking business. It's essentially be lucky. Yeah. Be go, lucky to high school, in, Stuart your, go to high school. Stuart. Go to high school. Finish high school. <laughs> uh, before we totally move on to the movies, I mean, I, the the organic theater phase, and I mean, can you talk a little bit about Bleacher Bums? Because that was, I feel like I saw an old TV presentation of that at some point as a kid. And yeah, there was a, a local uh, PBS station video of uh, Bleacher Bums, which. What wasn't bad, you know, sort of a B plus effort, but it did it, it gave you nowhere near the idea of what the live show was. The live show, and and it sounds like the worst idea in the world. You're watching a bunch of Cubs fans, Chicago Cub fans, watch a game <laughs> from the bleachers, from the stands, and it was. However, it was so true to life. It had a such a a core of truth that it was it was so authentic and authoritative in its presentation because the actors actually went to the bleachers and based their characters on people they met. Uh, So these were real people in the bleachers, people who were diehard Cub fans, but also were inveterate gamblers. They (laughs) They bet on every batter. They bet on every pitch. 
they they don't they didn't just bet on the outcome they bet on the every possible outcome it made for the basis of drama not only the drama of their winning and losing their bets but the drama of the game itself in which they were so invested because they were such diehard fans and so the core was already done before i was before i was invited to join i was sort of a dramaturg you know it was the play was built from improvs improvs uh, and again great chicago theater tradition of improvisational uh, sketch comedy and uh, and these improv actors <laughs> were among the, the finest actors around. It was Joe Mantegna. It was Dennis Franz. It was Keith Sarabica. It was Mike Sod. It was Stuart's wife, Carolyn Purdy Gordon. These people were uh, brilliant. All went on to have terrific careers. And uh, they were all working together at the same time on the same, in the same mode, on the same work. Uh, and coming in and being able to to do some dramaturgy with them, to add dialogue, to put in a straight line here, to move things around. You know, they just needed another, Stuart needed and wanted another perspective on it. And we had worked together, uh, as I said, as doing comedy in high school. And we had worked together in college doing theater as well. So he called me up, said, could you come out? Because he knew I was also a, a diehard rabid, sad to the core Cub fan. <laughs> and yeah, you know, I came out and was able to add a little something to help shape the show. And it was an immediate hit. It played for months and months in Chicago. In, in Chicago. Uh, it moved to New York. It played for months and months at several different venues off, 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 and then off Broadway in New York. Uh, it went back to Chicago. Several was revived several times. It was a, it was a hit every time. Uh, it was done all over the country. Uh, Samuel French took it up as a script, and it was done all over the country and in all over the continent and in Canada as well, uh, where they actually have a baseball team and <laughs> one little baseball team. And then it was, and then and then it was made into, uh, 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 and then it ran in L.A. It, it was the longest running show in L.A. I think it might still have the record. It ran for seven years in L.A. Oh wow! Because it's, uh, you know, it's it's a great. There's seven. All you need are seven actors. There's one yeah. light. Lights come on. You know, you need a box of popcorn, and that's it. <laughs> so it's actors loved it. So it was, and it's a wonderful piece. It's it's still out and about out there. A film got made that was kind of a B minus effort. That was the TV movie. I was just looking at yeah, it, up, yeah, it which is different movie. than the thing I saw. As a, the thing yeah, I no, saw the, as a kid, yeah, was, there uh, was a there was a, a better, a slightly better version done for PBS, a PBS yeah. in Chicago. So yeah, yeah, that was great. It was that was. Uh, I think I have the award for the most collaborate. I think I belong in the. Uh, Guinness Book of World Records for having collaborated with the most people. On that particular <laughs> show, I collaborated with 13 other people, actors, Stuart, the stage manager. We all got credits because we all we all participated in creating the show. You know, and then I've collaborated with Stuart. I've co-written with Stuart for many years. I've co-written a couple of other movies with a couple other guys, you know. Reanimator was co-written. There were three of us uh, at different times, but we all, you know, gave a gave a great deal to that project. So I, I think I think I'm up to something like twenty five, maybe thirty. <laughs> and and as I said, it it was great for me 
I mean, I collabed, the people I collaborated were generally terrific people who were exceedingly talented. And when you collaborate with somebody, you got to finish. You have to finish the, you're, yeah. you're responsible to somebody outside yourself. That's why I have a writing partner. It's harder yeah, to you give go. up when there's somebody else. <laughs> That's right. I was going to segue directly into Berserker, but Steve, did you add anything no, um, you want to talk about for, before that? Uh, before that, it's just, I think we just go from Bleacher Bums into Reanimator, which comes out in 1985. And 1985 is the same year as Berserker. So we can start there. Yes, once, once, once Reanimator came out and was uh, as successful as it was. Uh, and as I said, when, when Brian used it, I want to give Brian a shout. When Brian came along and, and said, Stuart, you want to make a movie? Uh, it was the right people connecting at the right time about the right thing. And, you know, one of my standard lines is uh, a good movie is a happy accident. <laughs> you have the best. You can have the best script. You can have the, a terrific director. You can have the best cast. You can, you can have a terrific crew. You can have, uh, you know, an, an open-ended budget. And you can make a, a clunker. It can lie there on the stage like a turd. I mean, like it's on the screen. And, you know, on the other hand, it was a, we had a low budget. It was, uh, it was written in pieces. It was first written, Reanimator was first written to maybe make a series because there were six stories. Maybe we can make a TV series out of this because there were independent TV series being made at the time. They, then they said a half an hour was only comedy. You need an hour. Then we expanded the script to an hour. And then let's make a movie. It's got to be longer than that. <laughs> so we expanded it to 90 minutes. It came out to, I think, about 85. Because Lee Percy, the uh, editor, did such a great job of putting just the best stuff in there. And uh, and the rest was history. It was We were off and running. So Berserker is one well, suddenly we, suddenly we were writing treatments we had Stuart and i had been written a couple of treatments before because we thought we might want to crack film but none of them really worked until none of them really were seriously considered for production until reanimator and by that time we had well we had a couple around and Stuart and his brother were big wrestling fans so they let's do it was Stuart's idea so it was often Stuart's idea to you know, write a wrestling story, and you know, we came up with Berserker, and that we were very, very prolific in the period right around Reanimator. You know, right before Reanimator, while Reanimator was being shot, and right, and especially right after Reanimator, let's come up with as many stories as possible. I mean, From Beyond came up right next, you know, and boom, that took off. So we were we were trying to pile up as many projects as we could to to present to and uh, the other thing was we were working with charlie band charlie at the time in empire and empire uh empire was all about cranking films out the one thing charlie could do was make a movie <laughs> and you know when when empire became full moon uh transitioned into full moon i think the i think the uh, motto for full moon was a thousand a thousand movies by the year two thousand, <laughs> and I think he only missed by about nine hundred. Yeah, but, <laughs> but that's still a lot of movies. It's still a lot. He yeah. still made a lot of movies. So you know you got you know you got to give Charlie a, a a lot of credit. He loved the movies and he loved making them and he got them and he got them made. That was the difference with Charlie. So 
there was a conduit there we could work with. So we were trying to, you know, put together as many projects as possible to show people. And Berserker also came up because, and I remember this, I've written, let's say, I don't know, I've had like, what, 12, 14, 15 credits in you know, film and TV, stuff that actually got produced, which is mind boggling to me. <laughs> but I've never been on the set. You know, the writer is anathema on the set. They don't want you because all you're going to do is complain that people didn't say <laughs> the lines the way you heard them. And that's not what you saw when you wrote this paragraph. So, you know, you're not, you're not welcome. Uh, even though, you know, Stuart was my best friend and we were, you know, it, it, nope. And plus I live in New York. All this stuff was being shot in, in either in LA or in Europe. You know, mm -hmm. I was 3000 miles away from production. So they were going to have to, no, you don't fly the writer out. So oh, I know, uh, and you're the and you're the first. You're also the first person off the project. They probably yeah. forgot about it. You know, they forgot you were there. Uh, you know, I had to remind Charlie a few times. You know, I I wrote that. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm you know, you know. But the one time, but I did get to go out. I did get flown out to Empire Studios to work on uh, the script of From Beyond. And that was terrific. It was great to be out there. It was great to work with those guys. It was different from what I thought it was going to be. I thought I was going to go out there and they were going to put me up, put me, sit me down at a computer. And there was going to be a bowl of cocaine next to the keyboard. <laughs> and, you know, and that there were going to be, there were going to be, you know, party girls afterwards. And uh, no, Hollywood, not the case. Not, when I got to Hollywood, it had just rolled over into Evian water and going to the gym. So not what I was looking for, but, you know, I'm out there and I'm working on rewriting From Beyond, which if you know, the, the, the entire Lovecraft story of From Beyond is told in the pre-credit sequence in our movie. So the whole rest of the movie is we made it up. What we imagined from what, what Lovecraft suggested for us to imagine, which is the worst thing you can possibly imagine. So that meant that it was open to changing and, uh, and, and plus the budget was constantly changing when you worked with Charlie, that was the deal. So we were uh, constantly changing the script. So I was out there doing rewrites and one day, and you know, at the time, because Charlie got movies made, because he worked with some B and, and occasionally A-list actors, you know, David Warner was in some of his films. I'm a huge David Warner fan. You know, I mean, like mm -hmm. Ernest Borgnine was in one of them. You know, wow, he was in The Wild Bunch. Wow, Ernest Borgnine. You know, so occasionally you'd go downstairs. I'd work on, be working up on the second floor and I'd go downstairs and there'd be, and Charlie would be hosting somebody, some, somebody you recognized. And one day it was Arnold Schwarzenegger. And it was like, wow, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger. Wow. And the first thing I thought was he's shorter than I thought he was. <laughs> you know? And the other thing is he wore shorts. He was wearing shorts and his calves are, were unbelievable. I don't know if they still are. They probably are because he's Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> but I mean, it was a, it looked like somebody cut him off at the knee and dropped a bowling ball into his calves. <laughs> it was unbelievable. You know, it was like, wow, this guy, this guy, you know. And at the time, I mean, I think he was, he had, he was he had just rolled out the Conan film and uh, he was, you know, he was Arnold Schwarzenegger. So we sort of, you know, we sort of plugged him into the idea of, of Berserker as, uh, as, you know, as a good, it would be a good role to approach Arnold about, uh, if I yeah. have to call him Arnold. <laughs> I think you can. So uh, we worked, so we worked some more after From Beyond, we pulled out and dusted off that uh, treatment 
and worked a little more on it. And we thought it was good. You know, we thought it was really good. We thought it didn't get made because of the the issue making wrestling, the issue with wrestling. They really didn't want to suggest that it was theater as opposed to actual sport. And our script focus, focuses particularly on the fact that it's actually primarily theater that you have uh, and, that, and that wrestling is storytelling, that you have heroes and villains and the heroes have to win. The villain can occasionally win just so that the hero can come back and defeat mm-hmm. the villain, or the next hero can come up mm-hmm. and defeat the villain because heroes got to defeat the villains. And because that's storytelling, that's satisfying, that's satisfying story as opposed to real sport where gosh, who knows who wins. So it was, you know, we always thought that the script was that the story, the, the outline we wrote wasn't seriously considered for production because there was this sort of unwritten rule that you can't, you can't tell what you can't tell on wrestling, even though everybody knew it. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, if you look at wrestling film, if you look at the wrestler at Darren, I think it's Darren Aronofsky. Yeah. Uh, Darren Aronofsky's the wrestler. It sort of sidles up to that, but it doesn't really do that either. You know, I mean, it does and it doesn't at the same time. And uh, but but maybe my favorite film about wrestling is my film about wrestling film, which was the Coen Brothers. Uh, oh, what's it? Barton Fink. Oh, Barton Fink. Yeah, yeah. Barton Fink. <laughs> yeah, because wrestling films are cool. And I'm going wrestling. Picture. That's such a crazy idea. And you must understand. You must have read. the. I, I thought the Coen Brothers read the somehow got a hold of the outline for Berserker and said, oh, there must have been a wrestling film. That, you know, oh, how what a bizarre idea. These people thought they could get a wrestling film made. We should make a film about how crazy it is to make a wrestling film. So, you know, and there's something else in that, in that outline. Uh, one of the money shots, and in Stewart's films, there's always more than one money shot. Stewart was going to call, Stewart's memoir is coming out, his autobiographical memoir. It's called Naked Theater and Uncensored Horror. And it's by Fab Press in England, and it's coming out the middle of November. And uh, in it, it, its original title was More is More, because that's what Stewart (laughs) believed. You know, you don't build to a climax in a movie. You build to a climax in every scene that you possibly can. You make every scene as exciting and as awful and as thrilling and as satisfying for the audience as you possibly can. And you worry about the next scene next. So there's always more than one money shot in Stewart's films because it's, you know, because every every scene, every other scene, if not every scene, should have a money shot. Uh, but one of the money shots in uh, the in in our story for Berserker was when the main character is uh, overcome by this drug he's been taking that's going to make him a more powerful wrestler, so that they're going to have to make him a hero because he's so he's so tired and depressed by a lifetime of being a villain that he takes this illegal steroid this under-the-counter renegade steroid and he become it, it takes it takes him over and he become and as steroids can it uh, makes him kind of mad uh, but it also makes him incredibly strong and there's one point at which he's in a in a street fight I think he's in a street fight 
if I remember the story correctly. And a truck is bear, a, a Mack truck is bearing down on them. And he turns in time to see the truck and he stops it. He stops yeah. runaway <laughs> mad truck in the middle of the street. He doesn't move. The truck's jackknifes uh, from his, from the strength of this that the steroid has given him. And yeah, you, you know where you've seen that? Well, I've seen it happen to the Incredible Hulk recently, but <laughs> I believe it was in Hellboy. Hellboy, it was oh. in the first Hellboy. You know, so Del, I think Del Toro might have seen the. I mean, that's entirely for, possible. You know, uh, for Berserker. On the other hand, you know, great minds. You, yeah. know, <laughs> you know, but it's true. I I tell myself when I'm when I'm when anything when I used to say when any when I you know when I put a piece of paper into the typewriter. When I open up a new document in, in final draft and I start on a script, I tell myself there are another hundred people on this island. And I'm talking about the island of Manhattan, where I live. There are another hundred people working on this idea. <laughs> and that's only in Manhattan. Yeah. So get it done, Dennis, and get it, get it, get it seen. You know, <laughs> uh, be the first one out there. You know, be the, the good ideas are. You know, good ideas. It's the idea of a meme. You know, who was that? Stephen Pinker? Was it Stephen Pinker? The, you know, or Dalton? Uh, the idea of the meme. Memes are out there. You know, our culture speaks to and through us often, as often as we speak to it. Uh, so, you know, more, pow more power to Guillermo and, uh, if I can call him Guillermo, <laughs> and, uh, and everybody out there who's who's stolen that from us. What? Also, was this something you and Stuart were just completely doing on your own or were you doing this for Charles Band? We were doing it on our own. It was an idea we had before. Stuart's brother, David, who's a, a, a fantastic character on his own, he he's made a he's he was a sort of an ethnobiologist. He I remember one time when I saw him, uh, he worked he was working at the aquarium in Chicago and he let me feed a shark. That was <laughs> that was scary. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you hold a fish head, you hold it, you have a fish by the tail, you hold the head in the water of the tank, and you just shake it, and you see this shadow appear. And then the shadow gets darker, and it gets bigger and darker. And all of a sudden, there's like a whirlpool around the head of the around the fish that you're holding, and the fish is sucked out of your hand into the jaws of the shark that you barely see before it disappears again. So, I mean, that was, and he was very clear to me. David was very clear to me. He said, Don't put your hand in the water, just the head of the fish. So this is advice to all of you out there who ever feed a shark. Just don't put your hand in the water because it'll get, because that whirlpool. Uh, you lose a hand. You yeah. Anyway, he was also, he's also a great harmonica player. And now he makes a living cooking bugs for people. Uh, and demonstrating <laughs> cooking bugs for people. This is a, this is the family that Stuart came from. Yeah. Uh, Sounds and, about right. <laughs> and he was a huge wrestling fan. In high school, he was a huge wrestling fan. And Stuart sort of took that from him. And uh, and he was, he, so we were into wrestling uh, fairly early back when we were in college. Uh, so that was, that was an earlier idea. That was, yeah, we didn't do that for anybody. That was us. That was us in particular. What was the reaction from Schwarzenegger? Do you remember? I have no idea if you ever saw it or not. You know, I don't remember the reaction on that film from just about anybody. I'm sure we showed it to Charlie and I'm sure it just sort of got, you know, 
if you wanted to make a film for Charlie, you walked into his office and he showed you some artwork. He always had, he held up some artwork and said, you want to do this? That's how Castle Freak got made. You know, when Stuart, you want to go, how about this, Stuart? And he said, what is that? He said, oh, it's Castle Freak. You know, and and Stuart (laughs) automatically connected it to H.P. Lovecraft's The Outsider and said, oh, yeah, 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 we can do that. And I'm, I'm very proud of that little film. That that was a, it was a good piece of work, and and boy, and Jeff yeah. and Bar- Jeff Combs and Barbara Crampton did a great job on that. But the uh, you know, if it, if he didn't have artwork for it, he didn't see it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was like Meridian, Kiss of the Beast. He knew he wanted to shoot it in Rome at this particular place in Rome, so that was going to get made. You know, because he already saw that in his. You know, he didn't see Berserker, and again, you know, so uh, you know, I'm and again, I'm not. I'm not, I was never conversant with who, with what the multiple people who would have seen and read these. Cause Stuart was, Stuart was, you know, at the time I didn't have an agent. I don't have an agent now. Uh, at the time, you know, Stuart was, Stuart was in Hollywood and I was in, I was in New York. I, I had a job, I had a day job. I was an academic at Hunter College at the City University of New York. I just retired after 49 years uh, teaching. I taught Gothic fiction for 20 years ran a couple of writing programs and I loved it. I loved my day job, but you know, I, I did the writing. I worked on the scripts. I either wrote them or I co-wrote them. Stuart was the one who took them around. So I never, I never got to do that either. I never got to sit around. You know, I got to sit around with Ray Bradbury because he and Stuart were great friends and that. Oh, wow. Cool. Oh no. Yeah. Incredibly, incredibly, remarkably cool. But I was never invited to pitch meetings. Yeah. And I always wondered why that was. <laughs> I think it's because I think you can tell now. I mean, you ask me a question and I go on for 20 minutes. You know, <laughs> That's I what we want. Your, it's a podcast. I answer your I answer your next three questions. You got to scroll down. That's not that's not, I'm terrible at the elevator pitch. You know, I don't, you know, don't don't get me if you want me for an elevator pitch, you got you want to stop that elevator between floors. And you know, and, and you know, nobody wants to be trapped in an elevator with me. So that's, so that, so I was never, I, I, you know, I was never on set. I was very, very rarely part of the pitch team. So uh, I don't really know who saw these, but I, I knew we kept cranking them out. We kept cranking out outlines or, you know, Stuart, somebody would come to Stuart with a, you know, an idea for a project. You know, most of my work has been work for hire. Somebody comes to me and says, let's do this Lovecraft story. Let's, let's adapt this, you know, let's, you know, write a film about, uh, you know, uh, about this castle freak. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm not the one who knows the history of, I know, I know the history of these projects through the script. I yeah. rarely, through the script and through notes that we get back. If if some producer's interested in it or optioned it, remember options. Remember when <laughs> options were paid, when they paid you for the idea. I was recently paid with a couple other friends I collaborated with on another script. We actually uh, that it it there was you know serious interest by a couple of different people over the years in it, and it was optioned. And remember when options used to get a thousand dollars or something like that, you know, big names got $5,000, you know, I'll move your script around for six months and see what I can do with it a year. You know, uh, our options were like, if we were lucky, it was a grand for 18 months. This last option was for a dollar. You know, <laughs> we get, we get the film, we get, we get the rights to move this around for a year for a dollar. Dollar. You know something? They moved it around. They didn't get it made. And I never got the dollar. Yeah. Wow. 
That's the business. Uh, well, what you were saying actually does make sense, I think, with because we'd heard that Schwarzenegger did see it, but at this point, this was after the Terminator, and he had ultimately decided he didn't want to play villainous characters. But even hearing that story, knowing what I know about Gordon and knowing that Band was tangentially involved, I was like, well, I don't know why you just get a different actor than if Schwarzenegger mm. didn't want, but it makes sense if Band was also kind of like, eh, I don't see what this movie is, so... I'm not sure that's what happened, but I believe I think you might be right, though. I, you know, I know, I know we were we were trying to show Charlie almost everything we had at the time, you know. But Char and and it's not like I didn't work for Charlie, you know. Charlie Charlie fed me. Charlie was feeding me, you know, Ghoulies. Here's a, you know, what what can you do with Ghoulies? <laughs> yeah, you know? ghoulies. I, I, I love I, that I, sequel, by the way. That's a great. Yeah, one. Ghoulies every, two. We're talking yeah. about you, and, you know, I mean, it's you know, I'm. I'm not sure what kind of praise it is when people tell you you wrote the best Ghoulies movie. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean it's praise. It's still, <laughs> but, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm happy with it. But you know, but it was like Ghoulie, you know, the Ghoulies is is sort of Charlie's Gremlins, but yeah. it, it's there was already Ghoulies, and there are going to be more Ghoulies, and you know, okay, whatever. But you know, again, I tried to find a story for that, and actually, there sort of was one there that I that I was interested in telling. But again, Charlie gave us work. I did mostly work for hire. So ideas that Stuart and I generated ourselves, rare, I, unfortunately, rarely got done. Uh, we had a, an idea for a, and, and it's untitled, actually, for an, a film to make in Ireland, because Stuart shot, I think he, he shot, or he, he edited uh, or worked on uh, space truckers in, in England and Ireland. And he mm. loved Ireland. And uh, I have an, I have a, an Irish degree. I have a degree in, in Anglo-Irish studies that I got in Dublin from a Dub Irish university. I taught, besides Gothic fiction, I taught Irish lit for 25 years. And he said, let's, oh, he, and he was very taken with Irish culture and Irish mythology. And he said, let's write, you know, let's, let's write a, uh, uh, you know, the, the equivalent of an Irish sword and sandal movie, which is the, the Irish, the Celtic tribes, versus the Vikings, because Vikings were cool at the time. This is right before the series Vikings started. So it was like, yeah, okay. And we have a wonderful outline for uh, a film of on the uh, Celtic, on the invasion of the uh, Norse into Ireland and the struggles of the Irish clans to, to withhold, uh, to protect their culture against the marauding, Vikings, who were, if you, you know, you know, your, 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 yeah. your noises, they were berserkers. So we got mm -hmm. more berserkers in there. <laughs> uh, you know, there were, you know, leading the, leading the Viking hordes were these berserkers who would tear their clothes off. And, and, the, and the, what's interesting is the Celts fought in just a loincloth. They fought, they often fought naked. They would, they would paint their bodies and fight naked. So it was this wonderful, you know, it, it, Stuart Gordon, you know, he's like, yeah, you yeah. know, all these naked people fighting. Yeah, that sounds like a story. <laughs> uh, so, wait, know, did you say the title of that one? No, it's untitled. We oh, actually it's never untitled. Okay. You no, know, yeah, well, it rolled through like it rolled through a half a dozen different titles. Oh, okay. And I, I you know, haven't been able to, it's, it's here someplace, it's here in a pile by my desk someplace. Uh, but, you know, I, uh, but it's, it's a one, the story was wonderful. I wrote that. And Stuart was very, he, he gave it to me to write. I, I wrote it up and he was very taken with it and, and moved it around. But this was a, that was a big production. That was a big, you know, that was a, a huge casts. 
lots of fighting, period piece. Yeah, that was that was a, a, a hard sell. You know, and the other period piece I wish we could could have made was the, the film version of Nevermore. Evening yeah, Radio. I always wondered about that. Yeah, there's this, I wrote that script. There's a there's a film script that brings the we did a one person show, an evening with Edgar Allan Poe. And I wrote it based on readings uh, and uh, evenings with Poe that he used to do to raise money. He was very poor almost his entire life. So he would, but he was a very popular poet. So he would do poetry readings for money. And there were very famous stories about how he would be drunk at them. And they, they, they were very complain about his critics and stuff. Right. It's really exactly. Funny. And he yeah. would get, he would get into back and forths with the audience and he, right. And he, he would diss the people who, you know, who were paying him, you know, he, <laughs> he was very self-destructive too. So we did a, a one person show and Jeff Combs played Edgar Allan Poe as based on, the character he created as Edgar Allan Poe in our script for the Masters of Horror episode mm-hmm. in the second season uh, where we did the black, we did an adaptation of the black cat, where it was as if Poe was living through, at least imaginatively, living through the story himself. And uh, during a period in which he had writer's block and the at the end of which he recognizes that this is a great story and he has to tell. And Jeff was just terrific. Well, Jeff's a terrific actor. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, just <laughs> Jeff Combs is is brilliant. And again, working with working with geniuses is is the way forward. And he was terrific as Poe. He loved Poe. Stewart was a huge Edgar Allan Poe fan from way back, from way back when we first met. And so was I. So it was like, and I wrote the script from Poe's from Poe's letters and some of his uh, very obscure publications. And, and really 75% of that script is Edgar Allan Poe. It was like, it was like collaborating with Poe. It, <laughs> yeah. was, it was spectacularly good. I mean, talk about collaborating with Jesus. I was gonna say, one of the people, people who can say they collaborated with both Dennis Franz and uh, <laughs> yeah, Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe. Poe. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. So it, it was a it was a, a wonderful show. He did a great job. It was very successful. It played all over the continent. It was years and years, and and there is a video a record of it out there. But uh, we thought it would make a good movie as well. And so I I wrote up a script. But again, it's a period piece. It's a period piece. You can contemporize Lovecraft. Lovecraft was so good at understanding the science of his day and the the troubling social issues of his day that troubled him, which we have not progressed beyond. So it was possible to update Poe, I mean, update Lovecraft without doing any damage to his, while still being faithful to the mm-hmm. stories. But Poe is is very much of his period. And, and, it's just, and, and his character was so interesting that it had to be about Edgar Allan Poe in the first few decades, uh, in the in the 1840s, 18, late 1830s and 1840s. Yeah, what was the story of the, again, for the audience who hasn't seen the play, it's, I mean, it's such a perfect idea because you were saying it's as though you've traveled back in time and you're at one of these readings that Poe would do. Yeah. So it's just Poe, it's Poe at the podium talking to you. What was the story for the movie going to be? It was going to be 
that it, it was going to be an evening with Edgar Allan Poe, and he was expected at this theater, and he's late showing up. Guess why? And, <laughs> you know, because he's Edgar Allan Poe, and he shows up, finally, he shows up mysteriously at the theater, finally and mysteriously at the theater, and seems to be in no shape at all to do this reading. And there's a stage manager character who in the in the play, he talks to somebody at a couple of points off stage, who's trying to, as he gets more and more, as he gets crazier and crazier and more and more, uh, he, he imbibes during the, uh, during the evening and gets drunk as Poe often, occasionally, if not often was at evenings like this. And he uh, yells at a character, at an offstage character. Well, we made that character a uh, character in the film. It's the stage manager. The stage manager is is terribly worried that the show isn't going to come off. Where's our Where's our Where's our headliner? Poe mysteriously shows up. He seems to be in no shape at all to go on stage, and suddenly he is, and he's brilliant because he's Edgar Allan Poe. Because he's actually because he's Jeff Combs playing Edgar Allan Poe, <laughs> and when he and as one of the things he does is read for the audience one of his tales, uh, one of his tales of terror. And the one he reads is the Telltale Heart. And at that point, we visually tell the story of the Telltale Heart. And he uh, reads a number, of, and, and through the rest of the evening, he reads a number of his poems. And some of them are just Jeff reading them, and some of them are portrayed imagistically in, in film terms, and including the climax of the evening, which is Poe doing reading The Raven, which at the time was the most popular poem uh, in the country. And frankly, around Halloween, it's still the most yeah, popular Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still one of the most famous poems, I'd say, certainly English language. So, you know, that one we showed as well. We, we actually, you would film the story of The Raven. Uh, so not only was it a period piece, it had a bird in it. <laughs> uh, so this was not an easy sell either. And while there were a couple of people who were interested in it, it almost got optioned. The, you know, the budget never came together. Uh, they, they did start a Kickstarter campaign to try to raise the budget. They didn't raise enough to make the movie to even, to, they didn't raise enough. There was a question whether they raised enough to be seed money to go after other money, other financing to make the film. But, you know, for, for a number of reasons, including other projects that Stuart was taking on in the theater at the time, it, it didn't get made. And so, you know, that, that, that script is lying there. Which Too is bad, that would have been. Yeah, it's, it would have been. Good it, movie. It's, it's, it's a, I'm very proud of that script. It's really good. Yeah, the play was great. Yeah, I have one. Back in, I didn't realize, after Reanimator, you guys were looking at Shadow over Innsmouth. And I didn't, I just, I read on Fangoria this whole article about it. And I didn't realize like how kind of close you guys were almost getting to it. You had Bernie Washington designing the de de monster designs, Dick Smith sculpted heads, and you guys eventually made it as Dagon later. But yeah. in the late eighties, it would have been a different movie. You had Vestron yeah. on board. Yeah, well, again, it was that this was uh, partly Brian's idea. Brian, Brian signed on to this. Brian wanted us to do another Lovecraft and a Shadow Over Innsmouth is a terrific story. It's central to Lovecraft's mythology. It's a lot of other people's, it's the some of the Lovecraft fans, and boy, does he have fans, <laughs> favorite stories. 
and and the Innsmouth mythology creeps into a number of his other stories, including the thing on the doorstep, which got made into suitable flesh. So yeah, so we, uh, I wrote a script for that. You know, Stuart was off doing. You know, Stuart was working on a couple other things, so I wrote the script. And you know, Stuart helped with the story, the frame the story, but I wrote that script, and it didn't get made. And it, again, too big, too big a project, too large, and. Eventually, another couple of producers in the 90s came on and wanted to make it. And that's when we started to see Bernie Wrightson. And when Bernie Wrightson did the drawings, I still have some of those drawings. Genius work. Genius work. Boy, if that had gotten on the screen, yikes. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and uh, and I visited and I've got to visit Dick Smith's house. Dick Smith lives upstate in New York. And it turned out he knew my neighbor, the guy who lives next to me, who was a uh, a, a, a medical artist. Uh, he had been the WPA artist. And in World War II, they went around together and they invented facial prosthetics. Dick Smith and my neighbor, Lou Barlow, invented facial prosthetics for soldiers in Italy who had been disfigured in the combat. So uh, Dick Smith was this remarkable character. Uh, It was such an honor to to meet him. And you go into his house and he had little heads of all the actors he'd worked with. He had carved little heads of them or sculpted them. You know, and I'm going, is that Martin Balsam? And he goes, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was, it was crazy. Anyway, he was, he came onto the project and it looked like it was going to get made. And then, the, and that, that script was entirely different. They wanted a, you know, start to finish new, new script. So I worked on a new adaptation, an entirely new adaptation. Stuart and Brian were putting the story together. I was writing pages and uh, the producers were never happy with it. So they went on, you know, we, we had actually started another project with them, which was a, it was called Grigri at the time, but we, 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 were, we were about to change the title to Voodoo Child. So we could use the Hendrix song, my favorite Hendrix song. So the, uh, about uh, Marie Laveau, about a, a, pro, a, a, about a progenitor of, not a progenitor, a, 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 a grandchild of Marie Laveau an ancestor who's Marie Laveau is her ancestor and, and how vo- how she finds, she discovers she has these voodoo powers that didn't get made either. They weren't happy. I was never quite happy with that script either. I was, I, we, we, you know, occasionally you just don't find it. You know, you don't find that, you know, where more is more in the, you know, we had the scenes, but we didn't have the, we didn't have the film. You know, we had terrific scenes for that movie, but we didn't have a film. Uh, so it was, that was, you know, that, and I, I understand why they passed on that, but then they passed on the, the new opportunity to do Innsmouth, which I did not understand. And then when Brian started his own uh, production company in Spain, he said, he emailed one day and said, uh, you know, I mean, I think I had just got an email. It was in sometime in the nineties. <laughs> and he emailed one day and said, you still got that script for, uh, you know, uh, Dagon? because we had combined Dagon with, which is a very short story. We had combined Dagon with Innsmouth. And uh, he said, you still got that script for Dagon? Yeah, oh yeah, I still got it, you know. Well, let me see it again. Again, they flew me to Spain, to Barcelona, to work on the rewrites. Because, 
you know, occasionally the producers want to look over your shoulder, (laughs) you know, and, you know, there were yellow pages and gold pages and pink pages and blue pages. And there was every color in the rainbow pages for that script. That script got, but it it kept getting, it actually kept getting better and better. Yeah, Uh, I love that movie. I I do, too. I'm happy it got made. Uh, But when you look at the concept art of the Bernie Bernie, Rice stuff, yeah, it's it's such a different. I know. And back then it was going to be shot in New England. You guys were. It was uh, we had a a site in New England. I I did go around with Brian and Stuart to look at because, you know, I'm, I'm in the East Coast to look at sites to make it up in Rhode Island and Massachusetts, very close to Ark to to where Lovecraft imagined that Arkham was. You know, it was it was we got, you know, we 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 walked around in Lovecraft's footsteps for that for that film. You know, the fact that it's in Spain may seem makes it seem displaced, but that's our closest work to to Lovecraft. Yeah. Uh, it's a and, great film. You know, and doesn't it hold up? I mean the guy, you know, talk about working with geniuses. You know, I mean, he was a troubled genius and he was, you know, he, he there's a lot to criticize in in his work and in his life, in his life. But, you know, genius is genius. And then again, in like in 1991, there was a couple of titles that were thrown around in a Fangoria I found. One was called Tor, T-O-R. <laughs> Can you, this is something I've been dying to know about, please. Uh, you know, I I was actually going to go up. There's a box up in one of my closets that has the multiple scripts I wrote for Tor. Oh my God, I need to know. And I was going to go. I was going to go get those and read them, but I, I oh. I'm a little busy. Okay. Um, you know, I'm a little busy uh, right now. Oh. Well, maybe uh, we can get you back can, on. You know, if you want to, you want to do this again yeah. sometime, I'll read Please. it. Or I'll, I'll, okay, let's you know, do you a can, tour. I'll, I'll notes, and you can talk about it. But okay. Tor, Tor was <laughs> Tor was one of those work was work for hire somebody came to Stewart and said you know i've got you know a couple of producers and these were uh name producers not big name producers but name producers who got films made and you know i've got a, a producer a couple of producers here who have a story that they're interested in telling and it's basically a, a monster movie uh would you be interested and at the time well you know where hey we're up for anything we're up for almost anything it was about, it was called Tor, and Tor was the monster, was the, the mythological name of this monster. And it had to, very much to do with Native American mythology. Oh, and when we found that out, we went, okay, that's interesting. You know, that's that's something we'd like to know more about. It's one, one thing, you know, uh, I love working on some of these projects because you, the research is so great. So we, you know, we started, you know, researching Native certain north northwest uh indian mythologies and there's a number of them that have the deep deep in in the mythological past the the earth was uh you know a, again it's these it's this the idea of a totem the idea of the uh spiritual nature of animals and our our spirit how our spiritual nature overlaps the spiritual nature and and combines with the spiritual nature of the animals and of all life on the planet in a very symbiotic but often uh ambivalent way so there was op- there were openings for drama there and the whole i fundamental to some of these mythological stories was the 
idea that the earth existed, that the earth on which we walk is the shell of a giant turtle. And Tor was the turtle. Okay. Now, write a horror film in which the creature is a turtle. Oh, gosh, I got to <laughs> run from this beast. You know, you know, it'll, you know, oh, well, gee, I did. I successfully ran from this beast because it's a turtle. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, so it was not the easiest script to write, you know, and again, you know, we had to create, we had to create characters from whole cloth, but it was very much about uh, the destruction of the environment, Char you know, uh, development, uh, characters more, more focused on developing land and this land being essentially an, an island. And it turned out that the island actually was the shell, the back of a shell of a prehistoric turtle. And, you know, and all of a sudden you get everything moves and, you know, the, the trees fall off and, you know, the, you have this giant turtle rampaging as only turtles can rampage through your, through the town and uh, destroying buildings, you know, and suddenly you have a, you know, you have Kaiju, you have, uh, you know, you have Godzilla without, without the God, without the Godzilla stuff, but it's another reptile taking you know just you know and you sort of wonder you know you know did the japanese ever do that was there a turtle wasn't there a turtle that's gamera yeah right you know gamera is like a you know, like a turtle you know but yeah okay but we were attaching this to native american and there were native americans in the story who were against the development this was sacred sacred this was a sacred island uh etc you know we tried to tell a story the story wasn't bad and as a matter of fact, the script isn't bad. It would kind of work, but they couldn't get it made. And they couldn't get it made, I think, because it was about a giant turtle. turtle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, if you think back to the monster movie, to the heyday of the monster movies, there was a monster movie about uh, Chicago called, I think it was called The Beginning of the End, where the monsters were uh, giant locusts. You know, and they had locusts crawling up the Prudential building in Chicago. And I was so proud because it was Chicago. Chicago finally, monsters finally attacked Chicago. Wow. But it wasn't scary at all. And there was some other film like the giant, Attack the Giant Leapus or something. That was rabbits. Giant the rabbits. Leapus. Yeah. Yeah, right. You know, I mean, it was like, you know, you know, so, you know, the idea is out there that anything can be a monster <laughs> as long as it's giant, you know. And we did the best we could, and that is not a bad. That, as I recall, I'll, I'll read it again. I'll, uh, you know, I'll let yeah. you know. But that was not a bad script, and that was not a bad story at all. You know, in any film where you get the National Guard rolling out howitzers to shoot at a giant turtle, it's got to be. It got to have something going for it. So you know, I mean, where tanks attack turtle, you know, cool. You know, there was, you know, <laughs> so we can do something with this. So I was a little disappointed that didn't get made, but it did. It did move along through a couple of steps, but it never got made. Yeah, because I, I I found it's not in good shape. But online, there's like a, a two page spread for it that must have been in the Variety, and it's just underwater looking up at a boat, and it says tour, mm -hmm. 
and it says it's time has come and i've just been like i'm obsessed i'm obsessed with aquatic stuff yeah. i'm like what is this i gotta know about well, when this. when tour's time has come call me because i got the script <laughs> yeah. so that's that's great Another one. From, did you guys, it said in like the Fangoria, you guys might have been discussing at the Mountains of Madness. Was that we always discuss? We always discuss the Mountains of Madness. I mean, it's it's Poe and me Poe. I keep doing that. It's Lovecraft's magnum opus. It's his uh, it's his great work. But like all his work, you never actually see the creatures. You uh, you see what the creature you see how mad the creatures make people who actually do see them become but you never see the creatures. You, what you do see are, let's see, giant penguins. You know, if I had a problem with a giant turtle, do I have a problem with giant <laughs> penguins? Do they sort of look like blow up things, you know, like you, you know, you blew this thing up and it was, a, it was a big penguin. And if you read that story, it's very much like a walk through a museum. You know, the better part of that story is somebody is, is this band of humans walking through a museum that tells the story of the old ones, okay? It's not dramatic. It's one of his least dramatic stories. And I always had a problem with Mountains of Madness. And if Guillermo del Toro thinks it takes $300 million, $300 million to make that movie, I don't know what movie he's thinking of. But I do know that you could make a great movie out of it because you can do what we always did with Lovecraft, which was reimagine it, you know, to, you know, you can reimagine it uh, because Lovecraft is giving you, you always have license when you read Lovecraft to imagine the worst thing you can, because he never shows it to you. He shows you the effect of it. You might see a tentacle slide off screen, but you never see the whole thing. He lets you, he lets you, not only lets you, he demands that you imagine the worst thing you could imagine, the old ones, the deep ones, the Shoguths to look like. And, you know, he does show you things like Brown Jenkin, who's got you know the rat with the human face, but, you know, that's pretty creepy. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, he was capable, but he never did it. It wasn't his style. He was an impressionist. He gave you the impression and let you imagine it the way we, the way we put together impressionist paintings. But uh, we're filmmakers. You know, when you're a filmmaker, you have to show it. You know, we, we're, we're expressionists. The history of horror film is expressionistic. The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, uh, Nosferatu. You know, the earliest films were, you know, horror films were German expressionism. They showed you. So we're, you know, we took that license from Lovecraft to show the worst things we could imagine. So if, if you know, Del, Guillermo del Toro wants to do that with the story, you'll make a, there's a great film in there if your imagination is up to it. Yeah, he's got, he's got the chops. Mm -hmm. So yeah, but I didn't see it. And the other thing about that story is, isn't it kind of like the thing Yes. I mean, we've done a whole episode even on Del Toro's unmade mm. movie, and it is the problem that so many things have borrowed from it over the yeah. decades. That I can be faithful to the spirit of Lovecraft, but being faithful to the spirit of Carpenter through the spirit of Lovecraft is a little, it's, it's beyond my pay grade. I, I've always worked with geniuses, but Carpenter's a great genius, and, you know, and I'm not, I'm not sure we're going to do better than that. Did you guys ever write a draft or anything, or was it always just discussed? No, it was always just talked about. You know, I, I just, I it, that was me. I was not up for writing it. Stuart was all, Stuart brought it up every time. 
Every time, let's do another Lovecraft. What about the Mountains of Madness? It's still got those problems for me, Stuart. If you can imagine how to get around those problems. And that was how we co-wrote often. He would come up with the concept, with the conception, with the story. I mean, sometimes it was just me. It was just take Dennis, take this, go. But, you know, very often when we worked together, Stuart had this, you know, uh, he was a genius at telling stories. So, you know, he would, he would, and he never gave me the story I thought we could tell based on that story. So uh, I, you know, I, I just, you know, it, it just never clicked for me to the point where I was going to sit down and start to work on that. You know, it was, uh, it was just not, you know, we, we weren't inspired the way we were by a number of Lovecraft's other work. I see. Well, one, one more, one more thing here. I, I'm sorry. I want to, I just had a couple of titles. Um, I saw well, that you, you in, in 1990, you wrote Invasion of the Body Snatchers 2, The Harvest. Right. So what, what happened with Invasions of the Body Snatchers? Because I know eventually a different director came on board. Yeah, Abel Ferrara, you know, and again, work with geniuses, you know, I mean, you know, boy, Stewart couldn't direct that. So they got Abel Ferrara. Oh, boohoo. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, you know, not bad. And, and, and Abel Farrar, and I let, can I call him Abel, brought in his writer to rewrite uh, Nick St. John, uh, lowercase Nick St. John, and, uh, or Sinjin, as they say in English. <laughs> I don't know how he, you ask him if you get him how to pronounce his name. And he made one big change, which I totally disagree with. He changed the main, the young male leads character. Our character was entirely different from the male lead in that our character was uh, discovers his own capabilities in the course of the movie. The, the young male lead in Abel Ferrara's movie is like the lead in a lot of Ferrara's movies. He's this bad guy. He's this badass, this badass dude. He was, uh, you know, he had come from the Iraq, the first Iraq war and he was, he was a nasty ass. And, uh, and he was, and he, you know, he, he was, and that, and that, that it's not that that didn't work. That's just not who our character was. Our character was a fuck up uh, who had to, who when challenged by the whole idea and then the reality of the body snatchers had to find his bravest and best self. And that's the kind of story we always wanted to tell. And that, that gave that character some character arc. Uh, the character in uh, Abel Ferrara's version doesn't have much of an arc. Matter of fact, I don't think it, arcs at all it's pretty low to the you know stable on the ground but to give nick st john his due he solved a couple of problems in that in the in the run-up in the in the development of that uh script in the early part of that script that that i felt i had never solved and he did he did a he did a, a masterful job on that i thought he did a masterful job on a couple with a couple of just with adding a, a scene and a half in the first in the first act and uh you know well well done and it got the film made. And, you know, I get, that's my only studio movie. That was Orion. <laughs> that's my only studio movie. So my mailbox money for that is bigger than all the mailbox money for all the others put together. Oh, right. I mean, was was Stuart originally supposed to direct it? Stuart was supposed to direct it. Oh, there's a wonderful story. I mean, Bob Solo was the producer, main producer of that. And he had produced the first, re and this was a sequel to a remake. How often do you get to do a sequel, a sequel to, a, to movie, a remake a re of, the, of the original Body Snatchers movie? And uh, Bob Solo had uh, produced the original, the Philip Kaufman remake. Uh, so he wanted to do a, a sequel to that. So 
we did it. We set it on a, uh, and Abel Ferrara uh, complains about this. I think, I believe he's complaining. He might've been being sarcastic, but I believe he was complaining about the fact that it was set on an army base. And, you know, uh, a, 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 and it was a, a family going to, the father in the family is in the EPA. And it was when they were decommissioning a number of uh, army of, of military bases, uh, but the EPA had to go in because military bases were among the most contaminated land, among the most decontaminated decon land use mm -hmm. in the country. Uh, they had buried tanks of, you know, gasoline and Agent Orange and God knows what that had seeped into the earth. So the EPA was going in. It was about the family of an EPA person going in and looking at this army base just at the time when there was don't when the uh, Clinton administration put in the don't ask don't tell policy which we thought fit the body snatchers mythology perfectly don't ask don't tell don't <laughs> be who you are be somebody else be some you know be some military identity you know be some conformist military identity which is we thought fit perfectly with the body snatchers mythology so the story of writing that movie, if you got a minute, yeah, it, you know, wrote it up, wrote the script, was pretty happy with the script, except for the I was never quite happy with the development, as I said in the first act, but happy with where it went and how it got there in the second act and especially in the third act. So, uh, and I'm very proud of a scene in the first act, and you know, and go back and watch that movie and tell me if you know what it is. But I'm real proud of it. And, <laughs> it's been a while uh, since I've seen it. I love it. No, no, go ahead, day. take your time. But when you see it, <laughs> that Dennis was proud of something here. What? What could it possibly be? <laughs> and uh, we wrote the script, and then Bob Solo said, "This is great." Boom, and it was greenlit, ready to go. Stewart was ready to direct and they said, oh, we need one more rewrite. Somebody at Orion said they needed another. Somebody above Bob at Orion said they needed another rewrite. And they gave it to a 29 year, because the main character played by Gabrielle and Anwar was, was in her teens, her late teens. And they said, and I was, you know, I was what, something like 48 or nine at the 45, five or six at the time. So it was like, he can't possibly know about young people. Get a young person to write this. So they got a 29-year-old guy to write it. And, you know, nothing against him. But a 29-year-old guy isn't 19 either. By the time <laughs> you're 29, you have no idea what 19-year-olds are doing. As a matter of fact, you are your identity is invested in not being a 19-year-old anymore. Meanwhile, I was working, as I said, at my day job at Hunter College, where I was teaching 19-year-olds every <laughs> damn day. So not only did I know who they were, I knew how they wrote. Oh, my God. So, you know, I mean, I was, I was furious, but, you know, you don't do anything, please. You're the writer. You're the first person off the project. I was used to this. So, boom. And that script got moved back off of being greenlit. The one that the 29-year-old guy handed in got pushed back because they were real unhappy with it. They sent it then, and this is a true story, to Stephen King for a rewrite. Did you hear this story? No. They sent it to Stephen King. And it's in Stewart's memoir, something he's very proud of. And I have a copy of this. Again, it's up in a box in my closet. But if you really want to see it, I'll get it down. I'll photocopy it. I'll, I'll <laughs> send it to you. 
It's uh, scan it and send it to you. I should scan Love it. it. Yeah. And there's a letter back from Stephen King on his letterhead that says, I love the body snatcher mythology. And I would gladly rewrite this movie, except this script is already ready to go. It's as good as it can get. Make this movie. Which, of course, they didn't. <laughs> and the next thing we know, Stewart is off trying to get a couple other movies made at Disney. Uh, he's not connected to Body Snatchers anymore. So they just, they found Abel Ferrara and he brought in Nick St. John. But the fact is, uh, we did a good enough job that Stephen King refused to rewrite us. Thank, and that's what a gent Stephen King is. That's, who, that's what yeah. you know, a, a real guy Stephen King is. I owe, I owe him a beer. And where did where did Larry Cohen fall in this? Because he has a he had the he had, he had the original script. Okay, so he had the original he had the original one, which you know we we sort of tossed. We took very little from it. And when that movie went to the guild, when that movie got made, and it went to the guild for the adjudication of screen credit, there were requests for ten credited authors. <laughs> wow. Okay. So how many people have I collaborated with? Uh, you know. That's insane. Well, you almost collaborated with Stephen King, but he was too almost, much Almost, but I'm got, you know, really a real mensch, you know, what a guy. That's crazy. Well, yeah. um, Stuart was involved with like Pet Cemetery and American Psycho. Were you involved with either one of oh, those? Oh God, I wanted to do American Psycho. I wanted to do American Psycho so bad. I wrote the pre-credit sequence and I sent it to Stuart and said, let's make this movie, show them this. You know, it's an awful book. It's an awful, miserable, vicious, terrible story. And Stuart was in line. Uh, but I have no idea. Again, I wasn't there. I have no idea why it didn't get made. I understand that Stuart did suggest the director who eventually made it. And it's not a bad movie. Uh, it's a pretty good movie. It's not the book, but it hits some of those high points. But it, what it doesn't do is hit any of the book's low points. You know, and some of those deserve to be in there because they are so low. That is a miserable, terrible story about about us, about who we were in the '90s, and it 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 deserved the film treatment it got, but it would have deserved ours too. I mean, that's yeah. I was. Because I love the Mary Heron movie, but I would also yeah. love to see Stuart. So I kind of yeah. wish there could just be so, two. So would I. <laughs> yeah, so I, can would only, I. I can only find a book. There was a book called Stuart Gordon Interviews that mentioned, um, Ed, it was for producer Ed Pressman. Johnny yeah, Depp agreed yeah. to star. And then yeah. it was pulled after the critical success of Silence of the Lambs to Ellis, uh, to Ellis's agent for a new person to come on the project that was the only no thing. idea why no idea why i remember going into ed pressman's office and being uh very impressed but again when you went into some of these guys offices there's a 29 year old in there as well who you know is going to read your script that's who's going to read your script you know somebody who's not your generation not you know who thinks who's a writer too but not a successful writer because their, their job is to be a reader. 
It doesn't make them a bad reader, but when your job is to be a reader, your job you feel that your job is to find why this shouldn't be made. It's a lot of no's till you get mm -hmm. to a yes. And you know, I just walked in and I got and and the vibe I got was no. Uh, so I'm not surprised it didn't get made. I mentioned Pet Cemetery. You didn't have anything to do with that. No, one. I had nothing to do with Pet Cemetery. I know Stuart loved it. Stuart loved Stephen King. Uh, we were going to, if there was a third season of Masters of Horror, we were going to try to do a Stephen King story. Did you have one picked out already? Or? It's the story that eventually Salem's Lot was written. That eventually... Oh, you know, Jerusalem's Lot? Or yeah, no, Jerusalem's Lot. I was okay. like Jerusalem something. It was that story. Well, it's a wonderful story. It's a terrific story. You know, to some degree, I like it better than Salem's Lot, which has, again, wow, Salem's Lot, you know, has... Is one of those one of those stories that has this great scene and that great scene and this other great scene, but it's you know like like some of the Stephen King's work. It's you know you you spend some time wandering through it, but boy can he do characters and yeah it would have been wonderful to adapt. I, I would have adapted any any King that I possibly could have, but yeah it was it was that story that that Jerusalem's Lot developed from, uh, and it's a it's a terrific story. That been I like both of your masters of horror episodes that did get made so yeah those yeah that you know, dreams in the witch house was one of Stewart's favorite lovecraft stories and uh he loved it because brown jenkin was in it we got to i'm so proud i got to put brown jenkin on screen but i did that twice the brown mm -hmm. jenkin shows up in the evil clergyman too back there in uh empire days and I lost that script entirely until somebody sent it to me. I mean, Stuart and I, as you, as, as I said, we started out in comedy. You know, we we always felt, you know, we were bigger than the brand of, you know, Lovecraft horror humor. You know, that was sort of our brand. You know, we we always felt that there was other stuff we could do, and there was other stuff we have done, we had done, and it was and it was good stuff. You know, and and people who know our careers know that. The fact, you know, I mean, Stuart did. Uh, a film version of Wonderful Ice Cream Suit, of Bradbury's Wonderful Ice Cream Suit, which is a, which he had done on stage. Boy, I wish you could have seen that stage production at the Organic Theater. Hilarious, wonderful, respectful, just magical. And, you know, there was, there was always, you know, other stuff we wanted to do that we, that, you know, that again, again, people looked askance at that. You know, oh, you guys do this. You know, we were only ever asked to do, you know, to do that kind of stuff. So, you know, but Brian was the, Brian was the true believer. He was the horror guy. He was horror, you know, thick and thin. He was, you know, it was, it was in his, in his blood and in his bones. And yeah. he was, you know, if there, if there were going to be more reanimator films, Brian was going to make them. Yeah. That's my next question <laughs> is house of reanimator. Oh, house. There are maybe 20 different outlines for house. And, you know, there are maybe- <laughs> That could be a whole book of those. Three different versions that, you know, where they get redone. It was, you know, we never quite found that story, which is probably why it didn't get made. We never quite found the whole story, but boy, did we find some crazy shit. Do you have a favorite one you remember that was just real, a real wild idea? Well, the idea of House of Reanimator is it's the White House. And it came, the idea came from when Dick Cheney had heart surgery, you know, and it was, what if he died on the table? Well, they'd have to get Herbert West to reanimate him because Dick Cheney was really the president, not George Bush. 
Cheney was really running the Bush was just a puppet. And then we got the idea, well, what if Bush is reanimated? What if he was dead and he was <laughs> and we actually he was pulling the you know, and then, you know, uh, and it was, you know, and so there were some, you know, and you remember what people were like when they were reanimated, you know, they mm-hmm. were pretty crazy fuckers. You know, you came back and you were angry that you were reanimated, you know, you're, ah, you know, unless you were Dean Halsey, who still had some little particle of his brain where he loved his daughter and he was going to save Meg from uh, the, the Dr. Hill's mad zombies, you know, you were you were a mad zombie. So, uh, you know, the president of the United States as a mad zombie. Didn't we just live through that? <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, you know, so, uh, you know, it it's not going to get made anymore because we just lived through that. You know, you it's too it's too obvious an idea now. But back back in the day, it was. A, it, but the story never totally came together. You know, writing isn't easy all the time. It's not always easy to find what to find that thing where you go, yeah, that's it. We'll make that. I've been really fortunate in my career that I've got, a, you know, over a, a dozen credit, more than a dozen credits, you know, you know, no, no, no complaints, no kicks. But that one, that one never came. I would, I was never quite satisfied with the whole story. Stewart thought we could do it. You know, I mean, at some point, one of them, we reanimated Richard Nixon. Oh, uh, you know, I mean, it was, you know, there, there was crazy, you know, it got crazier and crazier. <laughs> Like, like how crazy or like, do you remember? <laughs> like, you know, uh, you know, the, you know, the Walpurgisnacht at the end of Reanimator when all the, the bodies become, you know, come back uh, when Hill brings all these, the, all the bodies in the morgue back. Well, they were, you know, bringing de- dead, they were bringing dead soldiers back to fight in the next Iraq war. Well, oh, wow. of course, we, you know, well, of course, there was a Masters of Horror episode that Joe touched Dante. the same thing. Yeah, Joe Dante's, you know, and again, great minds thinking alike. So, you know, th- there were a number of reasons why that didn't get made, but there were really good ideas in it that kept getting done someplace else. So we had to keep change again, we had to keep changing the, you know, so it, you know, it just got it just got too complicated, too difficult. And it was, it was more of a big budget movie. It was not, it was, it was not a, you know. If you look at Reanimator, that's uh, you know that's a, a a five character drama. This was this was the government of the United States. This was bigger, so it was it was a hard sell, and and again, I was never quite happy with with where it went. Stewart thought it was good enough to to schlep, and uh, but we were we were connected with Brian on that. It was Brian's idea. Was there anyone attached to Stars to Present or anything, or any names thrown around? AC. William H. Macy. Yeah. That would have been great. You know, and and Stuart worked with him in a terrific adaptation of Mammoth's Edmund. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they got along great. Bill Macy's a Chicago guy too. You know, if you, if you got, uh, you know, Italian beef in your blood, uh, (laughs) you can work with Stuart. They were, they were, they worked, they worked very well together and he would have been great. And, and, you know, I, I, from what I understand, he, uh, I mean, I met him, but I didn't never ask him about this. But when I understand, he was interested enough that he would, we could have gotten another step with him, but we didn't get to the other step with Brian first. So it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. It seemed like you worked on it for a while too. Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah. you know? I guess, I guess but, you know, that's, not, that's not new for me. I've had two scripts. Uh, I had a script out there that was produced after 10 years. I had a script out there that was produced after 13 years. 
And uh, Suitable Flesh is based on uh, several versions of H.P. Lovecraft's The Thing on the Doorstep that I started in the mid-90s that Stuart gave to me to start when he was doing uh, he was doing Dagon over in Spain. And he said, what's, what's the next one we'll work on? Why don't we work on this story? Because it's such a good story. As Lovecraft stories go, it has more plot to it than most. Uh, it's a three character drama. It's more focused and a little easier to tell and uh, to get a budget for. Uh, and we both liked the story a lot. So I worked on it while he was gone. He came back, he liked it. Uh, I, gave him, I gave him the script. He liked it a lot. He schlepped it. He got it uh, optioned. Uh, and it didn't get made. They couldn't raise the financing. Uh, they had, uh, you know, they had objections to the script. I tweaked it, uh, not enough. Uh, the option lapsed. Uh, in the early 2000s, he was able to option it again. Uh, and again, same thing, they had objections. I tweaked it, they still had objections. They couldn't find financing, it didn't get made. And, uh, you know, an actor, a couple of actors were interested in it. Uh, five or six years later, they optioned it uh, again. I tweaked it. Uh, same problem, raising money for the same set of objections. And it didn't get made. I will let you guess what the, when you see the movie, I will let you guess what the <laughs> objections were. Because they were the same every time. You know, finally, unfortunately, during the pandemic, Stuart died. We miss him. I miss him terribly. He was my best friend. And I did a several Zoom memorials for him besides his, besides the LA memorial. There were several Zoom memorials and I did, and, and a, a couple of them I connect, reconnected with Barbara Crampton who had been in our movie, some of our better movies and uh, is you know terrific actress and a, a wonderful person. And she had, besides being his, an historically important scream queen and an, actri an actor with a, a, a long and storied career, uh, she has a producer's hat on now. She produces low-budget horror and does a really good job and gets movies made. And she asked me, do you have any scripts in a drawer? And I took out thing on the doorstep and blew the butt dust off of it and sent it to her. She liked it. She did a shopping agreement. She was able to attach Joe Lynch, at which time it was very likely to get made. If you attach Joe to a project, it's likely to get made. He's really good and hot at the moment. And uh, he attached Heather Graham to it, at which point it was a done deal. This movie's getting made. So he had a, he had a script note that as a writer, I'm not always happy with notes, but this note was terrific. It, you know, it's a gen, it's a, it's a mind swapping story. It's so it's a body swapping story, but it's also a gender swapping story. So inherent in the story is a gender swap which gave Joe the idea, why don't we swap the genders of these characters in Lovecraft's story? Which I went, we can try it. And I went back and tried it. And the wonderful thing was, I could still tell much the same story, but the gender switch refreshed the whole idea for me. It was like, you know, you have a story for 20 some years and you dig your heels in. You go, this is good. Why don't people see this, et cetera, et cetera. But Joe gave me this note and it was like, one, you take the director's notes seriously. And two, it really refreshed the whole story for me. And it made it new and better and, you know, shiny and wet. And uh, I, you know, uh, did the, redid the script. They liked it. Had to run it by Barbara because the two of the main characters, the, the story turns on a female friendship. Uh, but I had written a lead role for Barbara as a female psychologist, psychiatrist, years ago, watch from beyond. So I felt I was in uh, traveling on 
territory I knew. So, uh, but I really wanted to run this female friendship by her. She was fine with it and, and, and gave me notes that helped. So again, I was working with really good people and uh, the rest is, uh, you know, film and streaming history, which will start uh, tomorrow, I think, uh, October 27th. So yeah, at the time we're recording this, it's getting a limited theatrical run. And yeah, limited a, theatrical you know. run. Yeah, it's getting a theatrical release. I am so thrilled. Hey, if you get a chance to see it on a big screen, see it on a big screen. Yeah. You know, you know one of the things I've been saying about the film is Stuart was uh, always a great visual director. When I said when I met him, he was an art student. Look at when you when you watch his movies, don't just be thrilled by what happens in the story and the crazy stuff, but watch the look at the frames. He's a painter. His stuff is beautiful. He makes beautiful frames in his films. Joe is a film guy. He knows all the tricks going all the way back to the beginning of film. You know, irises and split screens and whirling cameras. And, you know, he, he doesn't pull out all the tricks. He just pulls out the ones he knows will tell help tell the story. But he has everything at his disposal. And boy, he does a great job of using it to tell this story. So I'm really happy that, that, and, and, you know, and Joe knew Stuart, you know, Stuart was a generous soul in terms of mentoring young, uh, young talent, young, young directors. He was jealous of his stories, but he was generous with his, uh, with his time and his expertise and his advice. And he also loved to have lunch. Stuart loved to have lunch. He loved to go take, you know, young people out. Hey, want to meet Ray Bradbury? You know, boom, you know, (laughs) so you were eating a steak with Ray Bradbury. You know, I mean, it was, you know, I miss those times, but, you know, working with Joe was, was reminiscent and it was, and the film is, is uh, dedicated to Stuart. And I think he, I think he'd have been happy with it. That's cool. I'm looking forward to watching it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I want to see it on the big screen. Yeah. Cool. I, don't, I don't know if I'm, yeah, if I'm well enough in time. I missed it at Sitges. I was so bummed. So I hope. I oh, sorry. Yeah. 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 And I missed it at Fantastic Fest. Yeah, that was there too. Yeah, it's making the rounds. It's making the rounds. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we hope it. We hope it's that '80s kind of, you know, horror that you know, because that's what the script was and that's what it was trying to do. And Joe is really down with that. You know, a horror film changed from in the last couple of decades. Mm-hmm. It's more subtle, much darker, uh, more intellectual, but just as scary, if not, if not even scarier. You know, and it's great stuff. But that's not what we do. That, you know, we do, we do, you know, we, we make films that make you, we want you to get up out of your seat and stomp the floor. And, you know, we hope this film does that. Uh, I've been in a couple of audiences where it kind of did. So looking forward to it. Well, it's always exciting for us when a unmade movie actually gets made. So. Yeah, yeah. You know, that was unmade for 20, uh, 23 or four years. Yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah. So, wow. So 24 years ago, you started it with Stuart Gordon. So that's yeah. pretty amazing. I started, yeah, I started for Stuart. Stuart said, you know, do the, this is, this was, you know, there were a couple of cases where, you know, and, and Dagon was one too, where, you know, Dennis write the script uh, from beyond Dennis write the script. <laughs> I'm busy, but you know, you got notes, you know, you ended up getting notes from brilliant guys. You know, it wasn't some producers, you know, set of, pro, you know, semi-professional readers. It was the people who were invested in making the movie who wanted to make it as good as possible. So the notes were always smart and useful and, uh, you know, and often genius work. Uh, so, you know, it's a collaborative business, but I, as I said, I, it, 
I'm a good collaborator. Anybody out there? <laughs> hey, I'm a good collaborator. <laughs> yeah. You got to keep making your list bigger. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's like Santa. You know, I, gotta <laughs> and I only want the naughty ones, by the way. <laughs> uh, well, thank I think you. that's a perfect place to end things. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dennis. Uh, everybody should check out Suitable Flesh. Unfortunately, by the time this airs, it will have come and gone from the theaters, but it will be premiering on Shudder in January 2024. You can follow us on the socials. We'll post, uh, you know, we talked about some concept art from this episode. We'll post some of that on the socials. Uh, we also recommend you check out our Patreon for some bonus content. But until next time, this is Josh Miller and Steven Scarlatta saying we won't see you at the movies. Yeah.